What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very good today, Mark. Do you know why I'm very good today? Why are you very good today? Just nostalgia reasons. Game of Thrones was my favorite game for a very long time. And they just came out with a digital version. So I, uh, for the first time, I sat down early, early this morning and booted it up for the first time. And it brought back all the wonderfulness that I feel in Game of Thrones. I have to feel that the digital version accurately captures the lack of interaction and diplomacy and negotiation the, no, that actually the, the, happens. The, the, there is actual, <laughs> there is buttons you can hit to get negotiations with the computer players. That being said, I didn't time my first game. I actually played it twice today. And I didn't time my first game, but my second game took 40 minutes. Wow. Full six player game. Nice. And I, I don't, I feel the first one wasn't that much longer. And it, you know, it's like I'm, I have more feelings for the first edition because the Westeros deck is more punishing in the first edition than Mm -hmm. it is in the second edition, but still love it. It is a fantastic sort of diplomacy style game where, where the combat's fairly, Locked in, you know, there's a little bit It's of, pretty deterministic, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, they, you play some cards, but you know what the person has, and you can sort of force their hand in some other ways. But all in all, the Game of Thrones, the board game, is now in digital version. If you're interested at all, check it out. Did we just skip several sections? I've got a little bit of whiplash here. No, no, I just, it's just, it's, I'm just in such a good mood about okay. it. <laughs> in case this didn't occur to you, this is going to be a board game podcast about board games. First, we're going to talk about the games we played this week, then the news and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game of the week, which is Fort by Leader Games. Well, before we begin, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. And happy Thanksgiving. All right, so on to the games we played this week. Let's start. I'll start, Mark, because it's a game we both played called Black Rose Wars by Marco Montenegro. Montenero. Montenero. There's no why. G in there. I don't know why. why. You... <laughs> I even said this to myself several times okay. today. Without the G, I thought I had it, but I did not. Montenegro is at least, uh, you know, it's it's a proper name. It's true. And this is by Ludus Magnus Studios. Do you know what Ludus Magnus is? I'm an expert in Latin. Are you? It's Big Ludus. Big Ludus. Big Ludus. It's Latin for Big Ludus. Wow. that's they, This is the same company that put out the other game that I've not given enough attention to, and that's Scion Tempora. Yes. Another giant uh, buckets of plastic game that I definitely want to get back to one day. But anyway, back to Black Rose Wars. If you ever played uh, Adrenaline, this is very much the fantasy version of Adrenaline, I feel. Even though I, uh, I, mean, I think I played Adrenaline three times, so I think it's a fair comparison. What do you think? I agree with you. I think it's Whiz War meets Adrenaline. And personally, I prefer it to both. I approached Black Rose Wars with some degree of trepidation. The 
publisher doesn't really have too much of a good track record as far as I'm concerned. And it was a large, sprawling Kickstarter. This is the retail version that we tried. And in games of this ilk, where there's a million different special effects, things can go very badly very quickly. And we had had, more on this later, we'd had a string of games that I felt either the sessions weren't very good or the games weren't very good, and so I was a little nervous. And under subpar conditions and under less than ideal circumstances, I think Black Rose Wars did excellently well. I had a great time with it. You had some misgivings near the beginning, and why don't you give voice to those so we can talk about the kind of game that it is? Oh, I'll have it. I'll have, I'll, I guess I had it at the end, but I'll talk about it now. In it, It's just a... Uh, you have to know what you're getting into, and it's a whole bunch of silly fun. This being said, the one part of the game that there is are these quests. So there is... They give you some sort of uh, goal that you go towards, right? Instead of just blasting everyone and running Which you around. can absolutely do. Which you can do, but I mean, like, if you want to, if you want to game... Not, I don't want to say game it out, but if you want to have a little bit of structure and you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do this turn as opposed to just randomly going around blasting people, you you get these quests. And these they're semi-hard to acquire. You'll get one a turn. There's some spells that you might fish out that will get you more. So what had happened in our game is... is and you sort of... Some of them are quite hard to achieve. You probably pretty well have to set up your whole turn to achieve this quest. So that's what had happened. I had set up my whole turn to achieve this quest. And then at the end of the turn, I said, okay, I've done this quest. Mark says, oh, well, that's fantastic. And flips over and card says, instead of you getting any benefit from it, I, in fact, get the Whoa, benefit from look, it. Look, Walker, first of all, you're lying. And <laughs> Every quest. No, 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 look, this, this is relevant. Every quest has three sets of benefits. There's competing for endgame points, which is substantial. There's the benefit on the quest itself. And then there's the actual points that the card give you. And the trap that I sprung allowed me to take any one of those three things. Of course, I had to pre-plan which of those three things that I wanted to take. And I choose to take the points because, oh, wait, who was winning? You were winning. True, but like I showed you later, there are quite a few quests that give you no benefit and are just straight up points. So it could have been one of those quests and there are that some, was just points. And there are some quests that don't give you points and give you straight up benefits. It's true. And 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 you took an entire turn away from a player by flipping over a single card. That is not true. What I did was <laughs> I took away a portion of one of your actions and I spent a, a third or maybe a fourth of my turn setting that up. True. Now, at that point... Walker petulantly declared, I'm done now. <laughs> and, and it was more or less the equivalent. Walker's a professional, right? He doesn't actually no, flip tables, but no, it was pretty close. No, I, no, I didn't say it. I said it knocked me out. No, no, no. You said, no, you said you were done and you didn't care about the game anymore. That's what you said. Did I? That is those. I, that is what you I said. I don't think I was that, that melodramatic. You were awfully melodramatic. It didn't ruin the mood of the table, but it made, made your feelings very clear, which is why this was about a half hour into the game, and about an hour after that, when we were done, it took us about 90 minutes, we had to we had to end early. For a first game, I think, given the amount of text on the cards, about two hours is pretty good for a full four-player game. You said, I quite enjoyed that, and everyone else at the table, myself included, was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> well, just that sort of situation sort of knocks you out of, of the theme. Like, you're in the game, everything was going well from then on. theme? Yeah, of like going out for these quests and completing things and attacking each other, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you know, you know, it just seemed the theme is four mages locked in a complex together with a semi sentient artifact that hates them, blasting each other's faces off and killing them and scheming and manipulating and summoning things to cut their heads off and stealing and manipulating and stealing and stealing. And did I mention the stealing? And that's absolutely the theme of the game. There are. Pretty much, you could argue that 90% of the cards are take-that cards. True, but they are all the spell cards, and all the spell cards interact with each other. Yes. Right? And I almost felt as though the quests were like an aside, right? All of the silliness is going on. The one stable thing on the side was the quest. You can sort of, you don't have to worry. You know, I had that, to me, I had that feeling where they were on the side. Let me ask you a leading question, Walker. Let me ask you a leading question. Sure. How many defensive spells did you put in your deck? Zero. That is why it happened to you. There is not. You could have had a defensive spell to defend against my my theft. You didn't. It's true. You had zero defensive spells the entire game. All you did was throw fire in people's faces, and then you get angry when someone fights back. Well, like I said, I thought it was a separate part of the game. Anyway, that you talk because you only ever dealt with destruction spells. It's true. Meanwhile, everyone else was dabbling a little bit here, a little bit there, trying to set traps, trying to set defenses. I want to talk just very quickly about the subpar uh, conditions that you talked about because it was quite funny. It's like we flipped over the first, our very first game. That was shaky, yeah. That was. We flip over the event card. The event card says everyone gets teleported to the middle. Yes. 
surprise <laughs> and you start loading up on area of effect spells yeah. and it was just one of these exact perfect storm things where i just happened to draw a card i happened to be the first player i got to play a card that locked everyone in the room for that entire turn and then just dropped bombs in that room like damaged myself quite intensely oh yeah but damaged everyone else as well yes I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've been I've said before, and I commented this in the context of Cosmic Frog, I've been looking for a free-for-all, punch-you-in-the-face kind of game where there aren't hurt feelings and where everything goes along smoothly at a good clip and there's no A versus B and C wins kinds of problems. And I have to say, uh, hot on the heels of having found success in Cosmic Frog, they're very, very different games, but they have a similar sort of aggressive feel. Black Rose Wars, for me, was a winner. It's not something I'd want to play every day, and I d- have no conception of whether or not it's balanced. But it has definite advantages over something like, say, Adrenaline, in that you're constantly drowning in toys. In Adrenaline, you would have, you know, this is this gun. It does the following things you have to look up in a reference sheet. It turns X cubes into Y other cubes, and it's like, oh, okay, whatever. This is supposed to be a shotgun? Okay, I guess. As opposed to Black Rose Wars, where you're summoning undead knights who go and slice people up, or I'm turning invisible so you can't see me and your spell doesn't hit me and so forth. And it had really, really interesting tempo considerations, especially as somebody who was dealing a lot with things like reactions and defensive spells and traps, which, again, you weren't doing. You have to queue up your trap and defensive spells. And what you do is, instead of flipping over a spell and doing what it says it does, because you pre-program your turn to a certain extent, you instead just put a token to say, I have primed this trap. I have primed this de- defensive spell. And what that does is everyone else, or at least they should have been, they start looking around saying, should I target them for anything? Because they've got a defense triggered. Oh, someone has a trap available. I wonder, uh, should I do this? Or, And so you end up having to prioritize doing things early so that you can take advantage of this before people have set their, their things in motion. I thought Black Rose Wars did a number of relatively clever things in an altogether stupid format. And it pulled off both the clever and the stupid relatively well. Strange initial event notwithstanding. Yeah, and I like the trap cards. It wasn't just a trap, you know, if you attack me, I might spring a trap. It's if you go into a, you know, a purple room or if you do this, just arbitrary things. So you do definitely have to look around the table and see, you know, maybe I should do this before someone puts a trap out because they could stop me from getting into the room I need to get to. Exactly. And the tempo considerations are even deeper than that because the person setting the trap took a turn to set the trap that they could have been doing to either advance their own interests or getting to those other spells that they wanted to do. I do have a, a, a minor complaint, though, and I just want to stress it because it, it, it's bothering me increasingly over the years. The spell cards can be played generally in one of two orientations, uh, either right side up or upside down for the so-called inverted effect. Every spell has basically two versions of it. The exceptions are the trap cards. They're, they're only ever played face up. They have two different conditions on them, and you just trigger them based on what condition gets sprung. The backs of the cards don't have rotational symmetry, and so it's clear that if there is a card that is upside down on someone's mat, that it is not a trap and it can't be a trap and it never will be a trap. I suppose you could put your traps upside down. I suppose you could. That is a good point. It just bothers me. There's no reason why the backs couldn't have rotational symmetry. And it's not a serious gameplay consideration, and I'm not suggesting that it's the kind of thing where in quote-unquote decent play or proper play or strategic play, someone should or could look around at everyone else's mats to see what which, which are traps or which are not. It's just a minor design niggle. This especially bothers me for games like The Resistance and any time where you have to play a card in secret, ugh, cards, should, cards should have backs that are rotationally symmetric in such instances. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed Black Rose Wars. Yeah, the only small things I had was that the little tiny mini roses that you had to put into the creatures. They could have just... They gave you abundance of cubes in your color. Why can't you just put cubes on top of the chit as you move it around? Because the cubes are meant to be a limited resource. Uh-huh. And if you've run out of cubes, you're not supposed to be able to place them anywhere. Oh, uh, okay. That that I didn't go into. And and like you said, as long as the people know what they're getting into. Oh, the buildings. The damage on the buildings. I just thought that was it. another mechanism that just didn't need to be there. Because... <laughs> Walker, because you no, I was doing. You, I was going. I was doing. I, I you, you weren't putting the, any effort into it. The one player that was a warm boy who was putting effort into destroying buildings got a lot of points out of destroyed buildings. True. You were just doing it incidentally because most of the time when you're blasting someone's face off, the room is going to get a little messed up in the process. True. I'm not saying that it's not a viable strategy or another. Th- I just thought it was one too many mechanisms in the game. Like if they if you had just peeled that out, it would have been fine. That's fair. My my objection is more that it wasn't visually obvious looking over the board which rooms took how much damage to go out because it's a function of how many recesses they have. They're all dual layered, which is nice for holding little cubes, but it's hard to to, to visually eyeball how many damage cubes it's going to take to wreck Yeah, how many are left? How many points there? And how many are left. But I, I think it's been made evidence from my repeated complaints about Walker's myopia. 
there's a fair amount of room to do lots of weird kind of cool stuff in Black Rose Wars, like you could see in something like Wiz War, but it's much more balanced and much more together than a game like Wiz War, but at the same time has, has a lot of those Euro scoring elements and lack of hurt feelings and targeting that was introduced in a game like Adrenaline. So I, I really think Black Rose Wars is, is a good design. I'm very keen to see the rest of the spells because there's lots of interesting kinds of things and lots of schools of magic to focus on. And you're always drowning in toys, a little bit like Spirit Islands, very different games. Behind Spirit Island was that you would constantly get new stuff to play with. And Black Rose Wars seems to have a similar kind of appeal. Yes, every game Spirit Island. On to the second game that we both played. Let's talk about Elo Darkness now. I don't want to talk to you about anything anymore. <laughs> Mark, who designed Elo Darkness? Elo Darkness was designed by Tommaso Mandadori and Alberto Parisi. Yeah, I don't even try anymore. That's been clear for years. I can do I can do Reg, Reggie Games. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's put out by Reggie Games. I got that. It's true. All right, so Elo Darkness is sort of a, a, a MOBA game. MOBA games are like League of Legends for the, those don't who those who don't know. It's sort of like. Uh, Two teams of champions, sort of like a rum and bones, crashing into each other, towers sort of defending or marking the path. So I feel Elo Darkness has some great card play and some some great decisions to make, whether to use cards to get more resources or to get more cards. Or it's one of these uh, games, much like the sorcerer game we just played, where you are making your decks depending on what characters that you choose at the beginning of the game you're going to take some uh like a, a a tank and a range and a wizard and a jungler support and then you're going to put these all together and with some other cards you purchase and make a, a cool deck so all the combinations are quite endless and i'm looking forward to playing it more the problem is that we both talked about is the setup is kind of brutal because like we just talked about you have these five different decks that you have to merge together plus purchasing all the decks plus putting out all the tokens and everything else so it's an awfully huge setup but i think it does pay off in the end the setup is considerable. Uh, to me, it's just on the verge of what I'm willing to tolerate. It's not like something like Warhammer Underworlds where you have to construct a deck ahead of time. It's constructing it from a whole bunch of modular elements, but there are a fair number of modular elements to select. And it's a strange game in a number of ways. I, I find adaptations of MOBAs endlessly fascinating, as was made clear when we talked about that run, that send up a few months ago. And Elo Darkness, the abstractions are neat. I, I, I'm willing to forgive the fact that it does away with minions because it kind of abstracts it away to this lane pushing element. I love pushing lanes. I, lo I love that notion of seesaw across different fronts. I, the same reason why I like Airland and Sea and games like that, even though very different games, every game is Airland and Sea, every game is Spirit Island. And, Ultimately, the, the, the problem with Elo Darkness is, as you say, we don't play it enough because it's so odd and because the hand management is so brutal. You run out of cards hardcore in Elo Darkness and entirely my fault. I didn't remind you of that when we were setting up and all the characters that I took were heavy on the card generation abilities because I knew that that was a huge deal. And the characters that you took, well, you you were building your team based on a theme. You wanted all robots. Yes, all robots all the time. All robots all the time. And you really have to worry about where you're going to devote your resources, which, again, is an aspect that I like. But if you're not ready for it going in, it can feel frustrating because hand management that constrained can be difficult. So I really like Elo Darkness. It's definitely one of my favorite MOBA adaptations for two players. It doesn't hold a candle to things like Guards of Atlantis. But again, Guards of Atlantis is, is modeling different aspects of the MOBA experience, namely the team play and a little bit more about interacting with minions, which again is some of the things that I love about it. But I do like hand management, even if it's that extreme. And so we should absolutely spend the effort to get Elo Darkness to the table again, just so we can remember how weird it is and not have to worry about those corner cases. Agreed. I get to play Sakura Arms. Sakura Arms is going to be kickstarted by level 99 in a few weeks. They're going to be kickstarting the first 18 characters, but there have been 20 characters released in Japan, and thanks to the very kind intercession of loyal swaggers in the uh, bow-shaped archipelago, I have access to all 20 characters, and I spent a lot of time printing out the paste-ups and, and slipping them into sleeves and having to genuflect at the altar of sleeving. And then crying yourself to sleep, I'm sure. Yes, but the cards didn't get wet, at least, so there's That's that. True. Yes. And I got to try some of the new stuff. There's always new alternate characters, and there's always new core characters in every expansion. And it would be a shame to spend all that effort and then not actually get to, uh, to, to play with it. So I played a few rounds of Sacker Arms. 
I really like Sakura Arms. It's one of my favorite two-player card battlers. And the new characters are very, very interesting. Unfortunately, they have subsystems that can't really be explained neatly on the space of a given card. You know, some of the entry characters are simply like, when your life is at three or less, your attacks become empowered. Or when this stat is at two or higher, your attacks become empowered. This one is like, well, you know, you have this special kind of token, and it starts over here, and every time you do this other thing, it goes over here, and here's this new keyword, and etc., etc. It doesn't get too cumbersome, but as somebody trying to deal with uh, a second language edition, it gets a little bit tricky. You have to refer to a, a, a series of different translated references, which exist and are easily accessible. But it certainly uh, means that it's better for slightly more experienced players. Fortunately, I was playing with Huey, who's played a number of times before, and he's able to, to roll with those things. I really like it, and I I wonder, though, and this is just personal musing, I wonder if I would like it in sort of a tournament context. If I got to the point where I, I definitely knew the deck that I wanted to build, all things being equal, now granted it's a bit reactive because you draft in response to what your opponent is drafting, at that point, I don't know if I'd still enjoy it to the extent that I do. I, I kind of enjoy just exploring the different spaces, and I don't think I've ever played the same two-character combination before, because you just pick two characters of your choice, and there are over 20 available with alternate versions, and so I've definitely never played the same combination. I play the same characters over and over, but not the same combinations, and I don't know if I would like it in that context, but then again, I don't know if I would like any game in a tournament context. I just don't know if I'm there anymore. <laughs> I I think the last game I played uh, in, a, in a real tournament setting was Infinity, and that was several years ago, and partially as a result, I got burned out on Infinity, but... Sacker Arms is great. I'm very, very glad that it's going to be localized again so that it can reach a new audience. And I will probably be saying more about it in the weeks to come. Yeah. I now have your copy. I'm going to deep dive into it a little, a little and make up some of my own little combos and we'll get some games in and we'll see how it goes. Sounds great. Mark, do you know what I love about party games? What do you love about party games, is Walker? that you can sort of strip them down by the vibe of the room and sort of just play the bits that you think will work at that time. Is this is this a series of euphemisms referring to Naked Twister? 100%. Okay. It was fantastic. Do you want me to go into graphic detail? Please don't. Okay. So Wits and Wagers, I found, I think I've got my teach down for that. It's pretty easy. You just give everyone the little notepad. You read out the first question and you get everyone to write it down and then you just do like a a first question thing and they understand the, as long as, as soon as they see how it works, it's so much easier than trying to explain the game. If they just, you know, there's their answers, you lay them out. Now you say, now just bet on which one you think is, is the correct one. So we played a couple games of that and then, you know, we broke and did some other, you know, preparing the meal type things. And they said, well, let's just ask some questions. Let's not, you know, set it all up again. Let's just ask some questions. So we just started going through and, you know, writing down, you know, to see who got it right. And then they said, well, let's just start betting on who we think. Is. <laughs> and it was so funny how they, they just pushed it back into the actual game without getting the mat out or anything. Right? That's and fascinating. Then, and then, and then I changed it up a bit and I said, okay, well, let's just bet against individual people. Let's just say, <laughs> I bet you that my answer is closer to than yours. Right? And, we nice. started, and we just started changing up the rules. And this is what I love about party games. They're, they're usually very accessible and, and easy to just sort of uh, manipulate to fit the room. And who does Witch and Wagers, Mark? Who, who, who's the designer? Of the designer Witch of Witch and Wagers is Dominique Capuchette. And it's North Star Games. North Star Games, yes. Also, under the topic of spending a long period of time sorting and organizing components, my Too Many Bones Trove Chest came in. So this large box comes in. Gross weight, about 10.8 kilograms. The weight of the box inside the box, about 9.5 kilograms. And somebody asked, what's in the box? Another box, I said. What's in that other box? I said, more boxes. There were lots of questions. So <laughs> to unbox a whole bunch of things, repackage and rebox all my Too Many Bones components because I have more or less everything in this series. What is more fun than that? It's honestly, if, if you're able to get in the right mindset, it's 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 fun. If you've got a good is, setup. No, I'm being serious. That's, I, all, that's, my, that's my jam. If I run, I, I, I tend to run out of space very quickly and then my back starts to get sore. So I have to be in the right mindset to do it. The last time I spent this much time organizing stuff was back when the Street Masters stuff came in and I had to organize all that. I actually recorded an editorial about the tactile joy of just sorting and organizing everything and getting into its place. And I have to say that the Too Many Bones Trove Chest is a work of genius on which the Carlson brothers are going to take an absolute financial bath because it's hard to ship and easy to damage 
not because it's it's badly designed, but because it's a it's a it's a ten kilogram box that you're shipping all over the place. You're gonna get damaged copies, and so oh great, something got damaged. We have to send out another massive thing to somebody. So I hope they're gonna be able to charge five thousand dollars for this trove chest when they finally have it available for retail. And I don't know if anyone will buy it, but it is it is truly marvelous. It's got this heavy brass ring and these magnetized drawers and lovely little boxes with stickers for every gear lock and lovely little boxes with stickers for every boss. The one area where it falls a little bit short is you start running out of convenient ways to sort all the dice. Not for the characters, not for the bosses. They all have their own components. But just based on the quote-unquote recommended setup for everything, you're going to find it's going to be a tight fit for storing even the plurality of some of the dice you have. And so finding room for my attack dice and defense dice was a, a little dodgy. And when you have a box like that, you don't want to put anything in a bag and shove it in one of the drawers. That just seems like admitting defeat. But it may be something that I have to do. It's a minor complaint on a very, very stellar product. And so sure enough, I didn't want to spend several hours organizing these components without playing too many bones. So sure enough, played too many bones. Played one, played one of the new, against one of the new bosses from Splice and Dice. I commented before that the new character, Dart, was not to my liking, so I did not go back to her. But I did try some of the new stuff from Splice and Dice that is not the Creative Tyrant version. This displays some of the best design impulses of games of this ilk. I've commented before that if you're going to have a system like this, what you want to do is design iterative content that is a response to whatever shortcomings or balance issues you might have in the base game. And Too Many Bones, although it scales fine experientially for the most part, it can get very, very long with lots of players, and some people complain that at lower player counts, the difficulty can feel a little bit off. Specifically, it is said, I do not necessarily have this experience, but it is said that two players is arguably one of the hardest setups. And the boss that we played against had mechanisms to address that. It made the game easier with two players than it would be otherwise, which I thought was a nice little nod. It didn't introduce a tremendous scaling element, but it very subtly made things easier by virtue of the player count. And I have to assume that's to address player complaints. So good on them for that. And it displayed some interesting variety. The boss encounter was very, very cool, but against Ammonite. And basically, you have to defeat Ammonite several times in succession in order to finally defeat the boss, which was neat. We had, quite by accident, the ideal setup for doing this, so it became a little bit of a raffle stomp. But whatever. I enjoy Too Many Bones when it's too hard. I also enjoy it when it's too easy. When it's being clever is when I like it the most. And sure enough, there were a lot of clever little encounters. Because the encounters, as we've commented before, can range all the way from set up a simple fight and play as normal to you automatically get these bennies to, okay, now go play a dexterity game with the components that, that you have. And you're like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing now. Lovely sense of whimsy. I really like Too Many Bones. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to transport this chest anywhere. My, my, my simple review of the Trove chest is engage your core, lift with your legs. Yeah, it might fall into the same category as the Sentinel's Tome, where it, it just sort of stays in place and you play it at home and doesn't get to go to gaming night. <laughs> so I tried to pay attention when I was bringing it from my basement to my table, would I be willing to take this to, say, my trunk, drive this somewhere, and then bring it? And I think the answer is yes. A number of people have commented that what they're going to do is they're just going to take a subset of materials out and bring, like, a, a sub subgroup of things if they're ever going traveling. That, to me, defeats the object. If you're going to have all the variety... How are you going to show it off as well if you don't bring it with you? Well, I'm, not, I'm less interested in that. Some of us are, uh, are, are confident in our... But it looks so good, though. In, in the superiority of our, of our oh, collections, Lord. Walker. We don't feel the need to flaunt it publicly. Okay. I don't know what your problem is. I, the only big box full of components that I've successfully transported on the regular is, as I mentioned before, the Street Masters Aftershock box. But it is much, much lighter and smaller than the Trove Chest. I don't know if I'll ever bring it anywhere, but I might try it sometime. Anyway... Had a great time with Too Many Bones. I'm glad the trope chest is here. I'm very glad everything is in one place. And it did make the game noticeably smoother to have everything sorted, even though, as I say, there are a couple of components where I haven't really found an ideal situation. That was my experience with Too Many Bones. Got to play a game by Steve Finn, the designer of Biblios, and it's produced by Dr. Finn Games, who put out games by Steve Finn. This game is called Nega Parbat. 
and was just a Kickstarter recently. He was like in a group of his games. He like, it was a Kickstarter for, you could, you know, it depends on how much you pledged. You got from anywhere from one to four games. It was the Biblios Roll and Write and a butterfly game and, and this. Another this, butterfly game. Another butterfly game. I guess it's, it's going to be the end thing. Zombies and butterflies and Vikings. It's good. I can't wait to the amalgamation of the three. Zombie, <laughs> Viking butterflies? Zombifly. Zombifly. Close to zombies. Don't try to steal it. So in this game, Apparently, it's a mountain, seventh highest mountain in the world, and you are moving around this mountain trapping animals. And there's several different kinds of animals, so wherever, and a Sherpa moves around the mountain as well. So there's six different areas of the mountain. If the Sherpa's there, that's where you're going to trap your animal, and you place one of your little meeples there. So what you're trying to do is either A, get different kinds of animals, or the same kind of animal, and at the same time, chaining up your meeples. So the Sherpa is going to move to, seen as there's, you know, six different areas, and in every area there's six animals, and depending on where the Sherpa, what animal you trap is going to tell you where the, what area the Sherpa is going to move to next. So if you trap the fourth animal in area one, then it's going to move to area four, and depending on what, and so on and so forth. So are you trapping animals, or are you, are you in point of fact, hurting a Sherpa? Uh, a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> now, the interesting part about this is when you cash in the animals for the different kinds or the same kinds, you lose them. But what you can do is you can use them for their special abilities first. And their special abilities are, you know, switching animals from place to pay, place or, or your meeples around or all sorts of different things to try to get you more points. And the other hook is as soon as you take that, benefit like say you know five different animals and you put your token on no one can take five different animals they can do four three two or one or six but you know it quickly fills up and i think it's very interesting i think it's a fantastic it's only two players i think it's a great uh gateway game because it introduces all sorts of different mechanisms and it's pretty well straightforward it's not nothing overly complicated and that's nega parbat by steve finn i've commented in the past that i hate the Scythe Digital Adaptation. I'm using the word hate here about the Scythe Digital Adaptation. But sometimes your friend Louie wants to play the Scythe Digital Adaptation. And Louie's a good guy. And you like Louie. And you want Louie to be happy. And so you play the Scythe Digital Adaptation. And you hate the Scythe Digital Adaptation. Did you play two players? No, we played it three players. Gotcha. And I think Scythe is fine with three players. I'd prefer it with four or five. But I think with three it works just fine. And... Honestly, I would prefer it with three in the digital adaptation because then at least it takes less time and then you can be done playing the Scythe digital adaptation. Let me just give you an example of why I hate the Scythe digital adaptation. Normally, when you would have to pay two different kinds of goods, one might think, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I don't design UIs, but it was just everybody who was playing the game constantly had these, why does it work this way? I'm having difficulty inputting these simple commands. If you have to pay two different kinds of resources, you might have the available resources that you have highlighted and you highlight this and say, okay, I want to pay one of, of, of food. And then all, then all your food will be blacked out. And then it's okay. Just click on a different kind of resource you have and then pay that. No, no, no. Instead, what you do is a sub window opens up and I say opens, but it just shows up in a a small corner of your screen. And you first pre-select the two kinds of goods you're going to pay. And that in turn highlights the hexes on the board. Why is it in that order? Why can't I just click on the resources rather than having to click on the category and then click on the resource? Why, Walker? Explain this to me. I don't know. I will contact the designer, the programmers, and I will find out. Please do. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I still enjoy Scythe. I'm not an evangelist for it like you are. I really think now I've played Scythe digitally twice since I've played Scythe in person. I think I get to play Scythe in person again to remind myself that I actually enjoy this game. <laughs> I definitely want to. I, I want to try the modular the modular map. I've yet to try it. You, you're right. We it's have yet to try the modular sitting map. Sitting in my box, and I want I wanted to give it a spin. We should absolutely do that. Let's make it a priority. Through the Ages. I played about three games of that this week. Through the Ages, A New Age of Civilization by Vlada Kavadl and Czech Games Edition, CGE. And Mark, I appreciate all the mechanisms in this game. But, it, is, it is a great game, but it's just not but, for me. Sure, it, it it just doesn't give you give me that sense of any civilization building whatsoever. Sure, everything comes out in you know in proper order, and you just it's just a bunch of mechanisms to get you cards and to and to 
you know, work this engine over and over again. It's just, it just does not appeal to me. So just out of curiosity, because I sympathize with you, even though I like Through the Ages, it doesn't feel very much like a civilization game to me at all. But by the same token, all games in the Sid Meier mold of civilization don't really feel like civilization to me at all because they've got these weird window dressing and trappings, but they just highlight the absurdity of what's going on. And I keep saying the same thing. It's like, if you're Napoleon with a tank battalion conquering the Colossus of Rhodes... I don't know why you're bothering anymore. Like, what is the point of all this stuff? Are there other Civ games in the Sid Meier mold that make you feel like, ah, yes, this feels like the rise and fall of civilizations? Well, I don't want to reenact them. I want, I want, I <laughs> sure, want to. Sure, sure. So I don't, I don't You understand mind. the question. Yeah, I don't mind Napoleon leading the tank battalion <laughs> across. Like, we get that in, in the, in the video game all the time, right? Right. So, so I don't mind that part because it's, it, it's sort of, that's what I want. I want to. Oh, okay. I want to rediscover civilization the way I want to do it, not the way. <laughs> I don't need to redo it. I want to rediscover it in an absurd, ahistorical, exactly. bonkers way. I already know the way it happened in real life. I don't need to relive that. Tripoli is right next door to San Paulo, which is right next door to Los Angeles, which is right next door to and Moscow. Then, and then Gandhi drops the nukes on me over and over again. Yeah, this okay. Is what happens? Clearly, we want different things out of the theming for our Civ games. I vastly prefer the thematic elements of games like Civilization by Tresham or even games like Tigers and Euphrates. There I get the sense of the sweep of civilization. I get the sense of of some kind of dynasty being built up, possibly contracting, possibly triumphing. But uh, apparently I'm just out of step with what the market wants. No, you, don't, you can't do it with Tile Layers, Mark. It doesn't work that way. Okay. And that was Through the Ages, A New Age of Civilization. I think it's a new story of civilization. A new story of civilization. Sorry, I just literally have letters here. Okay. And I'm trying to piece it together what I wrote. That is usually how words are constructed. I might just... You've got the letters, you see they come together, and then the letters form words. Oh my god, you're right. Crazy. Work on that. Chase chase that insight. I played a Feast for Odin. It felt like some Euro management, and I did not feel like any player interaction. And Feast for Odin delivered on all counts. I paid zero attention, substantively, to what my opponent was doing. I thrilled in some of their cooler discoveries, because cool things happen in A Feast for Odin. Neat little bits of, ooh, the, the nice little tile you got there, and good placement there, and that covered things. Ooh, you've, you've settled Tierra del Fuego. That's, that's awfully nice. And I'm being sincere. Those are cool little things that happen in the game of Feast for Odin. But I didn't want Tierra del Fuego, and there was nothing I could do to stop my opponent from getting Tierra del Fuego, so it didn't really matter to me one way or the other. <laughs> I'm being a little facetious here, but just to emphasize that A Feast for Odin, unlike Uwe Rosenberg's other tighter worker placement games, you're not going to see a lot of butting up against each other, even with the tighter action spaces introduced in the, in my estimation, ideal way to play, which is the Norwegian's expansion. But if you want to do standard Uwe Rosenberg polyamino kind of management stuff, if you want to breed some, you want to breed some guys, you want to have some boats, you want to, you want to have some workers, you want to feed some people, you know, you've been there before. But a feast for Odin is probably my second favorite way to do it. My favorite being Agricola, which again, partially because it's meaner. I was actually reading the rules to Hallertau, which is going to be Uwe Rosenberg's next big box Euro release. What and do you grow? You grow hops. You grow barley. Oh, you that's grow. Right. It's, all... the, it's a beer one. No, there's no beer involved. Oh, it's all about crop rotation. Oh, gotcha. It's all about letting fields be fallow and and thereby improving their their effectiveness. And that part seems cool. He's done. So goods into fields a billion times before, but this has this notion of crop rotation, and I, I have no idea what rela- what relationship it bears to actual crop rotation. I'm not an expert in such things by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it's a subtle novel twist on something that he's revisited time and time again. And quite frankly, when you know that Uwe Rosenberg is that good at worker placement games, that is enough to get me into the door, whether it's going to be any good, who knows. But anyway, I had a great time with A Feast for Odin, always willing to sit down and play it, again, if I'm in the mood for some not particularly interactive worker placement, and it did not disappoint. And then we played Pandoria together as well. This is by Jeffrey D. Allers and Bern Eisenstein from Iron Games. And slowly wearing thin on me, I think. I think it's just the the no control. Like, we've talked about games where you just top deck, like Indigo or whatever. But Indigo, the... The, the implications or the, or what's going to happen to you, whether you play that tile is not that big a deal. And you're about to play another one next in Pandoria. It's sort of like the whole, you, you don't get to form a strategy. You're just constantly top decking and sort of, I guess that could be the game, right? You got to move and flow with what you get. You know, that could be an argument, but 
I just I I prefer a game where you have a long term strategy. I agree with you, but to me, the, the absence of control, particularly with our latest playing, was because of the player count. In two players, you're going to be taking half the turns, and so you have a much greater control over how the board is going to evolve. Because to me, it's kind of like Indigo. The specific composition of the tile you get is not that consequential. It's more about how the geography of of the map is going to be expanding, sometimes even independently of what the symbols are on the map. Whereas when we played, the, the last time we played was with three players, and I really didn't feel like I had much control over what was happening either. It was, this was further compounded by the fact that due to a variety of weird intersecting interests, the game was decided relatively early on by a massive region of coins that just disgorged massive quantities of points to some people and not to others. And at that point, it was more or less decided, and that felt kind of anticlimactic and not very satisfying. There's a lot about Pandoria I still like, but it's increasingly becoming conceptual with me. And I agree with you, it's wearing thin to a certain extent. I love the multi-use cards. I love how you have to be careful about buildings and spells and manage your resources for all those things, because that's where you get a little bit more control. The board is going to expand very slowly and in a very staid way, but you do have the option of delivering rather tremendous upsets by virtue of a well-timed spell or a well-manipulated building. I'm not sure if that's going to be enough because the competition for two-player games is rather high, and if it's if it's less good with more players, I'm, I'm not really sure it's going to stay in my collection. I'm willing to give it another couple shots because I still find it interesting, and my early plays of it were still promising, so I want to see if this latest slump is an indication of my losing favor of the game or just adver- adverse conditions. So that was Pandoria. And those are the games we played this week. And now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So I talked before about how Street Masters was going to be running a crowdfunding campaign in October. More details have emerged. They are going to be releasing an expandalone, a standalone expansion called Tide of the Dragon. This is not to be confused with Dragon Tides, the game where you play martial arts cops, one of them being obviously Bruce Lee. This is Tide of the Dragon, where you're going to be playing martial arts cops, one of them obviously not being Bruce Lee. But this is Street Masters. I am willing to go for more Street Masters all the time. They're also going to be releasing something called a character pack, whereby they're going to make a full deck for some of the allies that were previously just a card and a miniature. Kind of sort of like the redemption packs where they make the bosses playable characters. And I've commented in the past that in terms of bang for your buck, the, these packs are some of the best design work you're going to find out of Blacklist games because they really do interesting things with fleshing out a given character or a given person in the universe and giving them mechanics all their own. And I'm very, very much looking forward to that. They're going to be doing it on Indiegogo, I think in part because this is one of those kind of sort of pre-order things where they say, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're going to print this regardless of what happens, and I don't know the Kickstarter would be happy with that. That could be conspiracy talking. Maybe they have other reasons for going with Indiegogo. But they're going to be doing that in a couple weeks, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Blacklist isn't severing ties with Kickstarter generally because their next project, Dire Alliance, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, as well as the Sadler Brothers, is going to be on Kickstarter, and that's going to be later on this month as well. So this, I think, is just a one-off for this kind of project. Well, with more other Kickstarter news, there's yet another world that we both love, Core Worlds. It was owned by Strong Stronghold Games, no longer. As of October 7th, it is now Quixotic Games, has obtained the exclusive publishing rights to Core Worlds, and they're planning to put out a board game. They're not, they're not, you know, focusing on republishing the Core Worlds card game. They're going to put uh, a whole different board game called Core World Empires, much like Sentinels of the Multiverse is putting out Freedom 5. We can only hope that these reflect fondly upon our our feelings of the base games so quixotic games is basically the imprint of andrew parks the designer of core worlds they've mostly been publishing dungeon alliance stuff which we didn't really like but we love ourselves some core worlds and so hopefully empires will be good i am most excited about the fact that there's now going to be a solo deck for core worlds as part of the same campaign it's strange not to reprint a game that's almost 10 years old by now but to release an expansion content for that game that you're not reprinting, as well as this uh, other game that's it, kind of the It could same be universe. something that he's just sort of had on the side. Oh, sure. He, and just sort of to entice people to come to the page, maybe. I completely understand why it would happen. It's just, it's, it's a little bit, in, in a market where a game that was published two years ago is old news, it's a welcome little bit of longevity for a design that I think, quite frankly, deserves it. So I'm very happy to see attention being brought back to Core Worlds. And more content for Core Worlds is great, and maybe Core Worlds Empires will be good too. I am always willing to try a design by Andrew Parks, even though much of his content proves to be interesting, albeit ultimately unsuccessful. On the subject of more content, Troglites from from Neoshima Hex 3.0 just came into my possession. I haven't had a chance to try them yet, but it's like yet another army. 
And there's a term called jumping the shark, Mark. <laughs> and I love, do tell. I love Neoshima Hex. You do? I know. But I'm just, this is sort of like my jump the shark prediction. Because half of the, all the rule books for these, these armies are this little pamphlet. And half of one of the pages were exceptions to other armies. Mm. Like sort of like, this rule works this way with this army. And this rule works, you know, this way with this army. You know, just sort of like breaking out. I'm just wondering if there's sort of like setting up the ramps now for the shark jumping purposes. And maybe <laughs> they should just pull back a bit. And, and reevaluate how these new armies are coming out. You know what? That actually reminds me of something. We would be remiss, I think, to not mention in the context of Black Rose Wars how few problems we had with card interactions. In a game swimming with unique cards, I think we had to reference the rulebook once to find out how things work. And it's a shame if something like Neuroshima Hex, which has always been a very, very clean system, introduces more and more of these niggling little rules problems in the corner. Well, it's not so bad, Mark, because at the bottom of the rule book, it says, come to Portal Games for the newest FAQ where we have all of the breakdowns of these, of these, uh... No problem at all, then, things, I'm sure. No problems. Uh, if you speak Polish. <laughs> okay. Only in Polish. Okay. Not in English. Well, that's good news for Pol- for Poles everywhere. There you go. News from Splotter, one of our favorite Euro publishers. Their next design is going to be called Horseless Carriage. So kind of like uh, Kanban Retro Edition, I guess. You're going to be designing and manufacturing automobiles. They say that they might have it kind of sort of ready almost by Essen 2021. Splotter is a very small group consisting of mostly of two designers. And things are ready when they're ready. And I, for one, am quite happy to wait. But I'm always glad to hear of new output by Splotter Spelling. So look next year, possibly a year from now, for a game called Horseless Carriage. Nice. All right, Mark, when I say Mega Gargant, what, <laughs> what comes to mind? Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, is is a certain acronym for a certain incumbent president's True. political slogan. But past that, I've got no associations. You don't. You you never heard of the you know the the mega gargants from from forty k. No. So, okay. So from other I, look, you have to remember. Okay, you're not. I am you're the, not, you're I'm not, you're not, you're I'm not a miniatures. I'm a miniatures gamer. That, sorry. Look, I just I've never played a core Games Workshop product. Okay. Well, anyway. So you ruined the whole bit. I look, I'm sorry. For the, for other listeners, when I said Mega Gargant, they'll remember giant these giant orc robot hulks that you know trundled across the battlefield, and and normally that would be enough. But a, apparently, Games Workshop have run out of words, <laughs> and for their new Warhammer Sigmar, they've brought out the giants, and they've decided to call them Mega Gargants, exactly the same as. Another product that they already have for space orc giant hulking robots. I I just don't understand it. Walker, just, I applaud you for having the journalistic integrity to address the pressing issue of space orc cultural appropriation. Exactly. <laughs> I knew, I knew you'd, you'd get where I was coming from. All right. <laughs> Finally, uh, October is my favorite month of the year, uh, primarily because it is the date of my made-up holiday, Arkhipov Day. I would just like to remind you that on October 27th, 1962, a man by the name of Vasily Arkhipov saved the life of every human on the face of the earth. And so if you're alive today or know anyone who was alive in the 1960s, you owe a great debt of gratitude to Vasily Arkhipov because he refused to launch an attack during the Cuban Missile Crisis that everyone agrees would have precipitated the end of the world as we know it. So I hope you will join me on October 27th, celebrating Arkhipov Day. We don't have any set planned festivities, but just spread the word. I would like it very, very much if more people knew about Vasily Arkhipov and what he did. And that is why I love October. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now for a feature game, Fort by Leader Games. Fort was designed by Grant Rodiak. It is a redevelopment of an earlier game he designed called SPQF, which is not... Uh, Senatus Populusque Romanus. It is Senatus Populusque Forest. Oh, th- see, I was getting confused. I, sure, like, I thought it was the the former, and now, see, this it all makes more sense now. I'm glad. I'm glad thank I can God, thank you. Eliminate this. Yeah. Well, you clarified the whole Mega Gargant situation. Uh, so well, uh, there you go. This is the least I could do. He also designed Cry Havoc, which was a troops on a map game that I think that I thought almost but didn't quite work, and Imperius, a very strange drafting area control type thing that I think is very, very neat and does actually work. Anyway, SBQF was originally with very attractive art in its own right of vaguely Roman woodland creatures, and it's been redeveloped with new art by Kyle Farron, the same artist who did Root, 
and now it is about children building a fort. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Fort? In Fort, you are waiting for an opportunity to do something, and then you find out that you can't because you don't have the proper suits. You happen to have too many resources, so you can't use that action. You don't have enough resources to upgrade your Fort, or your Fort is not the right level to put those cards in your tableau. So, waiting for opportunities that you can't actually take. That is Fort. <laughs> Uh, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I can't help but agree. Can we start by talking about the theme? I'd like to talk about the theme. I was about to say, I, I want to talk about all the, all the good stuff. Let's talk about the theme. Let's the talk theme about the theme. is fantastic, in my opinion. You're, you're, you're bribing children with pizza and toys upon, upon fear of death to, to build your fort and using the, the goodwill of your best friends and forcing them into labor. I love <laughs> it. It's all great. Well, we learn, we learn the true value of friendship in Fort, right? Friendship is purely transactional. Your best friends are the ones you can systematically ignore. They will work for you when you need them, and you can ignore them the rest of the time. And they are blindly loyal to you and cannot be lured away by even the prospect of genuine fellowship because of some strange attachment. The thing about the theme, and the theme is, is wonderfully realized by the components. This is one of those things where it's not just that the components are visually attractive, which they are. And it's not just that they're functional and fun to manipulate, which they are. But this is also a case where the theme is carried through very carefully in terms of how the components are realized. So your resources, your little wooden resources, are these adorable little toy boxes or these cute little screen-printed pizza pieces. It's great. It's lovely. It's charming. The The boards are double-layered, so there's a nice little spot for everything. The player aid sheets are gigantic and huge. has everything on it that you want. The box is super durable and cute little size. Everything about it. The art, unbelievably amazing. Two things, though. One, I will point out that I was a little disappointed to see that a lot of the art pieces were reused. And I have to say that I don't get the same sense of life in the cards that I do in a, uh, a card in, say, Root. And I'm only making the comparison because it's the same artist. A card in Fort is just a picture of a child. And you get some sense they're full of personality. You know, they have the, the wonderfully evocative facial features. But they're not these wonderful little tableaus that you get in Root. Every card in Root is a little story. Why is that bunny selling arms to that groundhog? And why, why, what is that rascally look on the bunny's face? Does the bunny know something that the groundhog doesn't? And you get these lovely little tableaus and scenes as opposed to just these, you know, picture of a child rendered usually in sort of duo or, or, or trichrome. But here's the thing about the theme that I really, that, that I actually substantively have a problem with. and I, Not a moral problem, just as a gamer. The theme works until it doesn't. The idea is that cards you don't play, you haven't played with them, and so other people might come and, and, and make friends with them. That's fine. That, that part is adorable. That part's great. What does trashing represent in this universe, Walker? It's telling that you fake them out. You say, hey, your mommy's calling you. And they look back and they and they get scared that their mother's actually calling them. And then they run home. Or maybe they forgot to do a homework project. So they, they run or or they have a piece of chocolate cake in the fridge. Okay. I mean, that's as good an explanation as you're, you're liable to get. Like, sometimes it's... it's there are actually creepy implications on some of the cards. Especially I'm, especially associated with the names and, yes. and, and the items they're holding. I, yes. I kind of like it. I'm not saying that in a game of Fort you're going to be engaging in, serious, in a series of child murders. I wouldn't say that. I'm not not saying that, though. And then there are cards where you really wonder what happened to them. Like, there's that kid who's very clearly a, a, a some kind of weird sapper. He's got, like, a shovel and, and a sort of a hard hat. And when you use him for his ability, you trash him. Are we to infer that he never comes back from the tunnel that he digs? There was an accident. I, All of this to say is that the theme is great, except for when it doesn't work, and then it just gets a little bit weird. We had a lot of fun talking about specifically why various cards would get trashed. <laughs> yeah, or, or why they would do the things they did. Yes. It was all very inappropriate. It was tastefully inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's talk about your your characterization of the gameplay about waiting to do something and then realizing you can't 
one of the things that Fort reminds me of very in a very pronounced way is Glory to Rome. Glory to Rome has a number of throughput constraints based on the amount of influence you have. You can't have more goods in your vault than the, num than the number of influence you have. You can't have more patrons than your influence. And Fort has a number of similarities to Glory to Rome. You can't, uh, Glory to Rome. You can't have more cards in your lookout than your Fort level plus one. You can't have more goods in your pack than your Fort level plus one. Very, very similar to Glory to Rome in that sense. Also in the following sense. We'll get more to uh, that later. But as a result, and based on the very strict uh, nature of the card play, you're not allowed to do an action unless you're able to do all of it. You're not allowed to discard a card for no reason. You're not allowed to play a card for no reason. And that part has excellent gameplay reasons. But as a result, very often, you just end up in these situations where you're just not able to do a lot of the things on your card. And I'm sure better planning would mitigate that to a certain extent. But I felt it, I, I felt it very constraining as a player. Yeah, and the fact that you can't do what you want to do with the cards when it's other players' turns. When it comes to your turn, you're more than likely have a, a full hand of cards, of which you can only play a couple, and then most of your cards are going out in your yard, and any chance of this, in qu air quotes, deck-building game that you might have had are now, you know, out the window. So let's talk about the following. If I play a card and it has a main action, if other people have a card of the same suit, they can ditch it from their hand and do the main action, usually in a slightly weaker way, but sometimes not. Again, this is somewhat similar to Glory to Rome. I didn't feel like it added much quality decision-making to the game, except insofar as it made cards with powerful private actions more valuable. For example, you would very frequently in your games turn to this one character called Ghost, who had no primary action, just had a private action, so you could do something and nobody else could. As a player... The decision of whether or not to follow usually struck me as a no-brainer. If I could, because I had the card and I was able to do the action, I would do it, and that's that. And I never, ever, as a player, felt that my decision to play a card was substantially influenced by the, the fear of someone else following it. If I can do it, I'll go do it and let other people follow or not. Is that in any way different from your experience? No, but I see other players sort of working it that way. They saw someone play a card that was, say, a glue card. And then everyone played a glue card to follow, and then they knew they could play a glue card and no one could follow type thing. So there is a little bit of strategy there that was semi-interesting. Sure, sure but, that, that, but then that's just capitalizing on a random distribution of cards and capitalizing on a, a strange artifact of the turn order. That doesn't strike me necessarily as quality strategic depth. No, but I'm just meaning that it, it is a, a mechanism that was being used. That's true. You're right. And then there's the... The fact that it's a deck builder, but there's no really ramp up. You don't really get to, like in normal deck builders where you get to specifically pick the cards you want. You just sort of pick from a pool that is available at the time. And there, none of the cards get to be upgraded. So all the, all the cards are relatively equal to all of the other cards. And more than likely your last turn is going to be identical to your first turn. It's kind of in an awkward middle for me because you have the sort of traditional deck builder model, whether it's a fixed market like Dominion or a rotating market like something like Shards of Infinity, where, yes, your deck improves in quality substantially over the course of the game. Here in Fort, your your endgame deck is probably going to be about as good as your deck in the beginning because cards are constantly coming out, going out and coming in. You're obliged to get a new card every turn, and you're usually at the mercy of losing some cards at the end of your turn. And so... Some people appreciate that, the fact that there's no ramp up, you, you kind of hit the ground running, but to me it adds to a sense of sameness. The game lasts about 45 minutes to, to, to an hour, but I just feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again, and I kind of wish I would could go back to the ramp up, honestly. True, but there are some things I do like. We You already sort of hinted at the play between your stuff, what which is where you put uh, resources you just get and your backpack, which at the beginning of the game can hold one thing, but as your fort gets bigger, bigger can hold more. So there's this back and forth between your stuff and your backpack, which I thought was fairly interesting. And there's some cards that triggered off how many resources you had in your backpack or copying your, yours or someone else's backpack. So I thought that mechanism was very interesting. I liked it too. I liked it less when it was interacting with strange constraints. Like for example, there's, there are card effects that say you get to copy the contents of someone else's backpack and put it in your stuff. Number one, you're always limited to four instances of either pizza or toys 
in your stuff, and there's no way to manipulate that at all. It's always capped at four. And so if somebody else has, say, three toys in their backpack and you already have two, you just flatly can't do it. You're just not allowed to copy because you do not have room. Those kinds of interactions I appreciated less, but overall the backpack element I did think was kind of neat, especially the ones where you could try to build up towards building up a robust pack and then playing cards that would give you points for the contents of your pack. That part was kind of neat and kind of sort of felt almost like building an engine, which for the most part fortifies. Again, because of the card churn and because of the fact that everything seems so transactional and, and itemistic and you're just opportunistically following things as you can because there's no reason to hold back. But those those rare glimmers where you could build up a big lookout and score points based on that or build up a big pack and score points on that, those, those parts yeah, I Yeah, that was my next point was the lookout. I, I enjoyed the lookout rule and this is all based around improving your fort. The more your fort, the bigger your fort gets, the more victor points you're going to score. You're going to trigger getting the end game goal. You're going to trigger getting this perk, which we'll touch on very briefly in a moment. And then you sort of like you're building a little tableau. Now you can fit more cards in your lookout, which means when you play your main action, you're going to be able to boost it up a little bit more than you normally would. I prefer how it's handled again in Glory to Rome because your the contents of other people's patrons affect how they follow. Here, the lookout doesn't affect how people follow, and I feel that that was kind of a missed opportunity because I might look around the table and say, oh, look, people's lookouts are very, very good in books. I'd better not play a book because they'll be able to follow it really, really well. I'm, this would have required other changes, obviously. I'm not suggesting it as a simple change job right away. But honestly, uh, the other problem I have with the lookout, as much as I liked it, was there are some weird rules issues in the, in the lookout that... I had, because I've read the rule book like three or four times trying to find clarification on some of these questions, it turns out that the only clarification that I was able to find definitively was, you know, the designer on BoardGameGeek, and I found several other threads where people were like, I, this made no sense to me. Based on the context of the rulebook, I had to have the designer clarify it for me, which is odd because I then went back and I read the rulebook for SPQF, and the SPQF rulebook I find much better than the rulebook for Fort. Yeah, there's a couple just basic things in the rule book that just weren't there. Like we talked about when you play your card, you can boost up the action for for the public action that everyone can do. And sometimes the personal action can also be boosted. And apparently the cards you use to boost it, you can use for both the same cards. But we were playing it that you could either boost one and then boost the other, but I had to use separate cards to do that. Yeah, we initially thought that it was sort of a, a, an exhausted resource or something, but no, it's, it's, it, and it, it applies to both. And it doesn't talk about, well, at least that we could find, it doesn't talk about that anywhere in the Yeah, world. we're not alone in having some persistent questions that that have to be resolved through a fact or comments on BoardGameGeek. And again, this was an issue that was clarified very neatly in my read of the rulebook for SPQF. So I, I definitely think the card design is very good, the iconography is good and consistent, and yeah, your first play, you're going to have a little bit of fumbling through, but after a while, it becomes second nature, like good iconography will do. But the rulebook left a fair bit to be desired. And I like the two things I just talked about. I like how it changes up the game every time. There's these end game goals. You're going to deal out a, a, a players plus one at the beginning of every game from a fairly large deck. So they're going to be goals that you're going for at the end of the game. Either have lots of toys, lots of pizza, you know, different stuff in your deck. And then there's these perks that you're going to get next. And they're going to just give you a benefit, you know, like, doing something better right so and they're always different and you know it's fairly interesting and we'll mix it up every time i i felt that the perks were good especially insofar as they gave me a reason to prefer one kind of card over another because again you're you're obliged to add a new card to your deck every turn and very often there's just this sea of samey cards you've seen a whole bunch of time before you know doc doc has been to every kid's fort doc just goes around he's not really very loyal so I guess I'll have Doc come visit me only because I like his suit, but, you know. I like the perks that that remained with you and, and changed you every turn, whereas there were quite a few that were just one-shots that yeah. that were not as good, I felt. I, I find the end game a little uh, fiddly as well. So the game is going to end as soon as someone gets 25 points, whether the friend deck empties out or if someone builds their fort to level 5, and then you're going to end that specific turn so if the last player like the someone's given the first player marker and they keep it for the whole turn so if the last player does any of those things then the game immediately ends i think i really i feel as though it would benefit from a one more round type system we were commenting on that actually last time we played there's an increasing movement or an increasing prevalence i think in games not to finish out the given round but to finish out the given round and then play another complete round as you suggest and I, I think I'm with you. I, I largely agree with that. But quite frankly, and it's not that I hated Fort, but generally speaking, when the end of the game came, I was happy for it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
maybe in this particular case, maybe ending better sooner is better. The kind of universe that Fort was trying to paint, I found delightful when it was able to captivate me. But most of the time, I felt that it wasn't, due to some strange thematic elements, and also just to how mechanically grinding I found most of the gameplay to be. I felt, as you say, my first turn felt very much like my last turn. I never really felt that my deck was developing towards a point. It was just shifting. And so I was navigating just this shifting set of relatively simple, relatively dull effects like okay this turn i get two pizza next turn i move one pizza and one toy into my pack this turn i score two points and ultimately it it, it, sometimes it's thematic sometimes it's mechanical i want a game to build towards something anything and i don't think that fort ever fort ever really came together yeah i didn't feel there's much decision space which feeds into my last thing i i I find myself wondering who this game is for because I don't find that there's enough decision space there. Like, it's like, I need pizza, I'm going to get pizza. I need toys, I'm going to get toys. Like, it's it's fairly straightforward. Do I have a card to get toys? Yeah, well, I'm going to play that one then. You know, stuff like that. Whereas, you could say, well, then it's a gateway game. It's nice, you know, for families. But I feel like there's so much symbology and so much, you know, this one will multiply, you know, the brackets are here on this card and the brackets are on the other side on another card. And so they, they act differently. And the fact that the rule book is slightly confusing, I just find it, I'm not sure exactly who this game is for. I agree. I wanted the decision of card play to be consequential. I wanted to care about whether or not other players were following my action. I wanted to care about whether or not I could follow an action. I wanted to care about the composition of my deck. And Fort didn't really deliver on any of those elements. And quite frankly, again, those kinds of considerations and those kinds of trade-offs, I do feel in a game of Glory to Rome. And they're very, very similar in a lot of ways about the tucking and the the influence limits and and building towards something. So uh, the the fact that it was so similar to another game that I think really does those elements really well definitely wasn't a point in its favor either. Agreed. And that was Fort by Grant Rodiak and Later Games. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.